I welcome back. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guests introduce themselves. So, uh, and not in order of importance, just top to bottom, because, you know, I can handle the clock work method. Uh, Killian, can you introduce yourself to people who um, haven't listened to your episode yet? Sure thing. Hello, my name is Killian Wolf, and I am an author and archaeologist. I write YA and new adult uh, fantasy, urban fantasy, epic fantasy, fairy tale retellings. Okay. (laughs) And I'm Malachi Fenn. Um, I am an archaeologist with the Florida Public Archaeology Network, and I'm also a scientific illustrator. and I just have a big personal interest in sci-fi, and it's part of why I became an archaeologist. So I'm very excited to be here today, and thanks for having me. Okay, so we're all nerds of history. So what was the first time where you said, you know what, these dead people are kind of cool? <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it, like, I've always found people fascinating, alive or dead. So I, I, one of my majors before I had to narrow it down was sociology as well. So sociology, for those who don't know, it's like the study of history, only the people are still alive. And when they're alive, they can argue with you. When they're dead, not so much. So for me, it was simple. I like history too. And it was, uh, I liked that they didn't argue with me. So when I got my master's and my bachelor's, it was, it was history. Because like I said, everyone that could disagree with me is gone. <laughs> so what about you guys? Um, I, um, you know, was always interested in it, but didn't know it was a real job until I was already in college. Um, (laughs) I was interested in anthropology because I found out that Kurt Vonnegut studied anthropology. Um, and I thought it would be like, you know, a smart move, do something fun in undergrad and then do something more responsible later on. Um, but once I got to my undergrad, New College of Florida, um, one of the older students told me you could be an archaeologist just with a BA and going to field school, and my goose was cooked. <laughs> so did you specialize in any certain area, like any uh, like era of time, culture, or anything like that? Uh, for my undergrad, I did uh, pre-colonial Maya archaeology. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, Mostly, or my thesis was about um, a site in Belize, uh, Cajalpech, and a cache of um, uh, ceramic figurines they had there. Okay, what about you, Killian? Uh, so, I mean, I was interested in archaeology since I was a kid. Before that, it was paleontology um, until I got older and I, 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 I was very interested in the human psyche and helping other humans. So I first went into psychology actually. And eventually I kind of like, I I was interested in studying why people do the things they do instead of the individuals. Uh, So I broke away from individual and I went into cultural anthropology and, uh, and sociology and speaking to my advisors and university before getting my bachelor's, um, they kind of just asked me like what do you want to do and I was very interested in archaeology but a lot like Malachi I wasn't really aware that it could be an actual career that you can actually do full-time um and then from there I went to field school 
in Spain, in Menorca, and I was working on an ancient Roman basilica. Cool. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, surprisingly, it was not very difficult to get hired <laughs> after that because uh, we were working in Miami and there was a site going on in downtown. So that's where we both met. Yeah. That is, that is awesome. <laughs> I, um, wow, I, I like that. So I, the, the internships I did, so I studied um, ancient and medieval, which is a very huge swath of time for those who haven't looked at a calendar uh, as an undergrad. And I realized that if I was gonna do those areas to pick any of that for a concentration, I'd have to learn a foreign language a lot better than, than I spoke because I was struggling with German in college. And uh, my advisor was like, well, when you go to your master's degree, why don't you pick something in America? Cause you speak English okay. And I'm like, oh, those colonials were pretty okay. Cause I, I was always been interested in the civil war. But that's an area of American history that's so played out. Everybody and their brother has argued over every individual topic about it a hundred ways from Sunday. But like, there's only been a recent resurgence in the colonial era. So I, that's what I got my master's degree in is colonial American uh, history. And so I did my internship at Valley Forge, uh, the historic encampment where the, um, the American army camped, which was kind of cool. Uh, when we were, I was on a dig site. So I was just a straight historian. I wasn't an actual archeologist, but there was a dig site on, on site. And uh, for the most part, interns didn't get to do anything, but like here, hold the flashlight kind of thing. They didn't want you to touch anything, but 15 meters North-ish of where they were doing the dig across the line to private property. And the, the homeowner was like, hey, you can play on my land. I don't care. You can't make it any worse. And if you find something, I get a tax write-off, right? Because now his land is historic. <laughs> uh, uh, that area of Pennsylvania is very like big on protecting history. So we went digging. And sure enough, we found some cool stuff. So for like however long they air the, the artifacts we found, it'll have my name on it forever at the Valley Forge Museum, which is kind of cool. Yeah, um, cool. But, you know, anybody who's worked in museums doesn't, like if you haven't, but they rotate those those exhibits all the time. So, you know, it was there for like two or three years. It probably will show up in a hundred years again. By then I won't care. <laughs> so did you, did you guys ever find anything when you were in the field that was, uh, you know, neat enough that, that it made it to a museum? <sighs> you want to start? <laughs> Do you need time to think? I, so what I found was actually Hessian equipment, the metal, the metal that survived from, from the Hessian uh, troops. Apparently more of them than we knew crossed over and fought for the Americans. The promise of free land will do that for you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, will, I will say, uh, to preface everything I'm about to say, that uh, the difference between what archaeologists think is important and what museum workers think is museum quality can be very different. Mm -hmm. That's a fair so, point. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it can be very hard to say what's going to end up in a museum or not. Um, I know that everything that we've dug up is currently housed in a repository, um, but the... Uh, to my knowledge, the site report for the site that we worked on 10 years ago, I believe, has not been completed. Um, hopefully I'm wrong. I haven't seen it. Listen, so. listen, listen. When I did my internship at the Deering Estate, I was uncovering boxes from 1987 from the you-know-who archaeologist. So rest assured that what we have uncovered... <laughs> 
so that's actually something that that historians and archaeologists both battle is the amount of times we've made discoveries that we just forgot about because they got stuck in a warehouse somewhere. So part of what I did at Valley Forge as an intern was catalog those boxes and boxes of stuff from all the previous digs. Like, oh, I didn't know we discovered one of those here. And I'm like, it's been in your warehouse for the last 30 years. Yeah. So it's it's always amazing. I wonder how much of that changes as technology with computers and the searchability and stuff. I wonder if that's gotten any better. No, there's no. Been, <laughs> there's, well, it, it's easier to search within databases right. and collections now, but the collections crisis has they been ongoing since the 1930s. They have to be digitized first of all, um, and because there's just so much, you know, so so much yeah. of it, you know, that it, it's really hard. So what I, I spent the summer mostly taking uh, inventorying the weapons in the arms locker which is an interesting prospect because if anything ever happens, the halon gas drops down and you've got like two or three minutes to exit. And so uh, I asked him what happens if I didn't make it out the door quick enough. And I remember the park ranger was like, well, we can get new interns. You're free. <laughs> so yeah. we there spent was... the time. <laughs> God. And interestingly, that is um, – part of the uh, internship project that I did um, when I was doing my first internship at a museum is I also had to catalog all the weapons and curate a little weapons exhibit. Right. Um, that is cool. Because, yeah. Um, and I will, I'll add this because it's interesting. Uh, said weapons collect, I was supposed to be working on iconography on a bunch of Weedon Island vessels, um, which is a particular okay pottery in Florida. What ended up happening the night before my internship started was that someone in a pickup came and dumped a huge cardboard box of jumbled swords and knives at the back steps of the museum. And I got there in the morning and they put this huge box in front of me and said, this is your internship now instead. <laughs> I actually traced um, a lot, a few sources of the swords, um, and eventually they got into a little like mini exhibit, which was really fun to do. That's good. That is cool. I will say that actually working with the physical, tangible effects of history make you rethink things. Like everyone assumes that people in history were shorter until you realize that no, they were just more in, like frugal. So if the pants still fit when they left the army, they just wore them until they wore out. So mostly what survives is the stuff for people that were so oddly sized that nobody else would wear them. Perfect. Not so much that, so the shorter people, like the short kings, their equipment or their, their pants got stuck in a, a box somewhere. And then the other one that I, I heard a lot, because I gave the tour for the uh, farmhouse where um, George Washington and Martha Washington um, sp spent that winter. And everyone assumed that they were so much shorter because the, the rooms have that optical illusion. And then you realize, man, the ceilings were a lot taller. And then if you factor in like they would sleep in the incline because they thought that was healthier. Well, the beds don't need to be as long anymore. So it wasn't that everyone was shorter. It was just, you know, we try to compare everybody to ourselves, which I think works to a point. And that'll, that'll bring our first discussion. Um, but I think there's room to accept that, you know, they exist still within their own culture of the time. And people forget that. So do you buy the, because this was the first day uh, my master's degree was this argument between all of us, was are people fundamentally people or are we different now than we were, say, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago? There well, is no wrong answer because nobody know, knows. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because we have seen, you know, different, just different catalogs or, or scriptures of people 
complaining about things that today people complain about, you know, like, um, and I, I, I can't, I can't tell you where this came from or it was just so long ago that I read it, but they were like hieroglyphs of uh, fathers, you know, complaining that kids today, <laughs> you know, kids today. Or our, our, um, our most favorite Mesopotamian copper merchant who's now <laughs> risen to infamy. <laughs> they they actually recently un, un, unearthed some um, parchment documents, or I don't know if they just found them or they just started opening them and going through them. And in the margins of this essentially text, um, book for kids teaching the, the young scribes how to read they're like doodling and making insults about their teacher so in some respects <laughs> that hasn't changed graffiti um, you know we find the, the graffiti, graffiti all the time yes um, the, the historic graffiti yeah so i studied military history in my undergrad um because i went to a military school and so one of the things that surprised me is how some things never change so like on a lot of roman sites the same you know uh, phallic jokes and phallic yeah. art. I'm trying to keep it family friendly that appear there that wouldn't look too off from what I saw in porta potties in Iraq circa 2005. Oh, absolutely. Like, in some respects, our crude humor hasn't changed. So I think there's some of that as well. You'd be hard pressed to find a perfectly universal human nature, but there is a lot of stuff that rhymes all across time and geography, you know? Yeah. Okay. So when we we talked when we came up with the topic for this fireside chat, dear listener, it actually was Miss Killian's um, episode when we were doing the pre-show and we were just talking. And I invite all of our guests because fireside chats are fun, and you know I can't think of all the ideas myself. So if they have ideas for topics, I'm game to to host it. And so she mentioned that it could be fun to do maybe something with the uh, what do they call it con language. No. What's that called? Yeah, what does language. that stand for? Constructed languages. Right. She thought that one could be fun, and that's still in the works. Or like writing believable histories for fictional worlds, and it, that got me thinking. Is um, you know, I've read a lot of fantasy, specifically, or alien cultures, where they try to you know dive into the history and lore of that that culture, world, peoples, and it sometimes fell flat. And I never thought to analyze why. So. What do you think is the number one marker that lets you think something is more realistic than not when they write about these these fictional histories in in speculative fiction? I that's for one, or if you want to, <laughs> I was saying that's a great question. <laughs> um, so I think that you know it really depends on how the um, the writer is going to start off uh, with their with their plot or their outline. If they're going to start character first, or if they're going to start world building first. I personally feel like it needs to really correspond together because whatever your world building is, it needs to basically play a part in how it's going to directly affect the character. And if your character is part of that culture, that society, then that society has grown because of its environmental influences. But if your character is coming from, for instance, in my Chronicles of Terrorland world, where they're coming from Earth and they're being thrown into this whole other dimension, then still you're going to be observing how the natives deal with their environment. And now you have your character from Earth dealing with a whole brand new environment. So you're looking at it from like an outsider perspective, kind of like an anthropologist. In anthropology words, that's called the Edic perspective. <laughs> Okay. Um, yes. So 
also answer the question. Go ahead. Is that, um, you know, I agree with Killian. It's how your characters interface with the world that you've built. Because the, the sci-fi the sci-fi that I've read most recently are Manhunt and Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy. And the characters interact with the world around them in ways that are really sensory and really visceral. Um, definitely like lots of questions that anthropologists and archeologists ask about like what life is like and what other group of people's experiences of life are like. And when they're really thought out um, in detail in terms of the human experience, that is the most exciting part of sci-fi to me, speculative fiction. So for me, I think of it in terms, so I'll give you as an example, one of the big shows back in the day, and I'm old enough, I remember when the History Channel actually showed history stuff and not like ice road truckers and aliens. Um, but they, they used yeah. to do, they used to do, I also remember music on MTV. Um, they used to do this show where they would take these cultures that never encountered each other and who would win the Spartans or the pirates or the whatever. Um, it was a fun show. They sort of took, um, what we knew of their equipment, they sort of measured it mathematically to see, and then they ran their scenarios. Assuming you trust their computer model, it, it was fascinating. But one of the things that they talk about that struck me as true because it fit with what I studied when I studied history is that nothing happens in a vacuum so when you've got atta um, assault and defense attack and defense equipment one is a response to the other so there's that constant yin yang back and forth the yo-yoing of technology i invent a sharper spear you invent a thicker shield you invent the thicker shield so i need a sword that can reach under it or, or whatever like a, the world evolves in response to itself yeah. in response to it. And so when you see cultures where they write, where one culture is just so vastly superior on a planet, that just doesn't fit without you giving me a good reason. For instance, when you've got two apex predators, for instance, alien creatures existing on a world where one of them was dominant and you can't explain how that happened in a way that makes sense. Um, it, it, that's one of the things that breaks it for me is the idea of like the world doesn't appear to follow like basic evolutionary ideas as we understand them. Um, so I, I tend to think in terms of the, the equipment, because you know I'm a military historian by training. Um, and so for me, that's the big one is when the equipment, you know, the, the arms race, they happen in response to each other. And when that doesn't match, I just, you know, it's, it doesn't ring true for me. Yeah, that, re that reminds me of, um, you know, those old, like those, those Cossack sabers that were used and they're kind of heavy. And wasn't it, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it the, and I, I the, the skinny longsword, the rapier? Yeah. French, yeah, probably Spanish. Um, I think that one was invented to be quicker. Right, and lighter. And, yeah, lighter and quicker. So when they looked at that sword and they laughed with their giant sabers, <laughs> they thought that that it, it was a joke that it was flimsy but it actually did a lot more damage because it was so light you'd be able to just swing it and you know get them faster uh, it also it wasn't even just that that it was faster in that respect it was because it was lighter it made you more mobile you were more mobile. nimble right uh, you, you saw that with when the in the early wars when the scots were fighting the english was because they weren't weighed down by all that armor in the bogs they could move quicker they could move um quicker. that played effect in a lot of battles i mean there's there's a benefit to armor for sure um but but being nimble has its own value um you know and anybody that's played any kind of rpg first person shooter understands that 
you know, unless you're a tank or you're well armored, you have to be quick. Right. And if you are a tank, you better hope that your equipment is sturdy enough that it can outlast their speed, right? Because you, you know, you only have to get lucky once, but they can move around a lot and tire you out in the meantime. That's so, right. That's the other thing. Speaking of size, is everyone assumes the um, like, for instance, armor was so heavy, and so you, I've seen some fantasy worlds where they write about like, oh, they're just weighed down by all this armor. They've done some tests, and I have some complaints against the way they conducted the test, but where they have people wear the full um, plate armor and they're running an obstacle course and they're beating like a soldier and a uh, fireman in firefighting suit. Um, and I, it's, it surprised me how nimble they could be in that equipment. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll link the video to your listener if you, if you want to watch it. My complaint was the firefighter was wearing equipment that he would run into a fire with, so I thought that was fair. The knight was wearing knight his armor and his sword he left his shield and his baggage but the soldier for some reason was wearing full rock and that's you wouldn't if you were assaulting something that would have been left behind so for a comparison they un unnecessarily encumbered the soldier but i mean that's nitpicking um you know because it is his equipment it just wouldn't be what you take to the field um but but it's still it's it's surprising how nimble that older equipment that we just assume oh it was so heavy they couldn't move um, which I think plays into it when you start talking about armor for either sci-fi or fantasy. Yeah. Um, people go into it with those misconceptions and then they write their fictional worlds based on the false premise of what they thought they know. And, it turns uh, out you can't be walking for miles every day on end carrying uh, <laughs> that heavy. They actually... You know, and it surprised me. They refer to, and I can't remember, it was one of the Confederate units during the Civil War, for instance, they called them the foot cavalry because they could march so fast and go so far that everyone just assumed that they were mounted, but they were just running. They were running. Um, and, and then the, the other famous unit that could do that were the, uh, the riflemen from the British Army and the Grenadiers. They were notoriously fast on their feet as well. So, you know, you got to never underestimate, I guess, endurance. Right, yeah. <laughs> for, for, for ability. Now, when you're talking about fictional uh, histories for, for planets and either aliens or non-existent, what do you think is the, the thing where you read and you say, this is absolutely a deal breaker for me? Like, they clearly don't know what they're doing. Like, do you have a red line that you, in the sand? I'll, I'll let you take this one, Mal Mal Malachi, since you're a sci-fi planet. I haven't really encountered many of those, maybe because I... I went to art high school and have the value of like all art is, you know, has value in some way. Okay. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to be judgy about that. I'm like, okay, this author made some choices that I necessarily wouldn't have made. But <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I did enjoy a lot. <laughs> are you running for Congress? Really great, Peter. <laughs> yeah, are you running for Congress? Cause that's a very political answer. I appreciate you splitting hairs. Very diplomatic. Um, so I think for me, when it comes to aliens, at least they, the it's, and I get you want it to be relatable to the audience who are humans that are reading it. But when you make everyone just a mirror image of humanity with no, like it's, yeah. you go back to what Star Trek did back in the day with the forehead of the week and everyone's basically the same with this one minor cosmetic. But when you're writing fiction, at least when you're, when you've got the words to do it, like make them different. Like they think differently. Mm. They talk differently. Um, one of the things that I, that I did separate from what Killian, Killian made her own language up and hired an actual linguist. 
I just cheated and used Babelfish, but I did what I call a language hop. So I started in English because that's what I speak. And I translated that English to, we'll say German. And then from that German, I translated that directly to French. And then from the French, whatever, like I just hopped languages. And depending on how foreign I wanted it to sound is how many languages. And then I ended up the end result, translating that back to English. And you get that effect. Like if you remember telephone as a kid, right. that game where you, you get that effect. As long as you bookmark so you use the same website every time, um, they have a cadence that's just different enough that it sounds alien, but it's still believable or still understandable. But you've got to make them sound and act like they're different because they are, right? They're aliens. They're, you know, mythical creatures or whatever. No, that's really cool. That makes a lot of sense. I think that, um, and you and you can do this with both fantasy and sci-fi when you're dealing with like creating a whole different race or a whole different planet or whatnot. Um, and that is that. This is why, also, why I started with the language first, because when you're creating a culture, um, for me to make it easier as an anthropological perspective, is what you have to decide on what first of all geologically your map looks like and that will basically okay. give you what resources do they have how do they survive and what are the common struggles and decide on what kind of society you want to have so for mine for instance instance the apani were basically fishermen and they were not fighters they weren't warriors to begin with they had like a defense but they wouldn't even have armor because they were very um, spiritual. You know, like this whole like fifth dimension spiritual um, world atta uh, like attached to them and through them that they have like magic and it's like elemental magic through this world. So they were very more spiritually, spiritually connected. So from that, their language was really, language as in like what words they need is like, you know, fish, paddle, boat, water, or ocean sea, those kind of things. Um, and depending on like the region geologically, like the same, the same kind of thing is like what they need. So it was interesting then to like write it and be like, okay, so now they had an invasion and now it's this now present time where my character is there to be like, how did that evolve from so many hundreds of years that they have had to fight? Right. So right. it was it was really interesting on like how the translation or the translation potion would like have them um, respond to the character, to the main character. OK, so for those that aren't um, cartographers, aren't map makers, do you think it's important to get the map made such that it makes sense geographically and geologically? Or do you think just a general idea is good enough? It really it depends. Believable? Yeah, it really depends on how in-depth you want to go with the world. If you're doing epic fantasy or if you're even doing like sci-fi, which in a way is very, you know, it's very epic, then the more details you put into it, it's going to help you down the line, even if you don't bring all of that information in. I think one of the things that I get the most is when people do include in their fantasy worlds their maps. And then for some reason, their rivers don't flow like a river should. <laughs> like, you know. They're going upstream. <laughs> right, right. Or, or up a mountain instead of down. Because gravity apparently works backwards. And, you know, you can get away with a lot with magic, right? Like, and, and if you're on an alien planet, as long as you can give a hand wavium, you know, explanation, mm -hmm. 
Like, as I, I long can, as I, it can be explained. But you have to know that you're doing something wrong so you can make a plausible explanation, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of just doing it and then coming up with it after the fact. Um, I actually yeah. have, I tend to just roughly sketch the uh, the maps when I do it. And then, um, so I don't know if you guys do it in archaeology, but as a, as a grunt, as an infantryman, um, I don't know if they use infantrymen now that we have lady grunts. Uh, I'll have to check that out. Um, so when, when I was in the infantry, we do this thing called um, um, sketch maps, and you'll do one called sector maps. Basically, the idea is you get an idea of your immediate surroundings, and then, you know, more like a straight line is a road. It doesn't have to be that detailed, right? But that's what, what a soldier would put in their notebooks with, yeah. little, with little sketches. I keep it to that simple, and then if I need extra details, I can add it later. I've seen some people go full bore, like they, they you know, they, they do the Tolkien and they, they get the full world map, right? Like, um, do you have a preference when it comes to what the uh, creatives use? Like, do you think it makes a difference? I'm a little bit in between. Um, I'm, I'm what you call a planter, you know, I plot and I pants. Um, and I do that even with my world building. Sometimes I try to give as as much details as I possibly can before I start writing so that I don't have any hiccups. But if I get stuck, I will just use what I have and then fill it in after. And I hate to say that because at some point I will get stuck and I'll just start pantsing it. And then later on, I look at the map that I drew and I'm like, shit. <laughs> Now I have to go back and rearrange stuff because I'll forget something and it's not all completely clear. So, I mean, I, I really prefer <laughs> to have it all done before. Okay. This so when you, that way. <laughs> when you plan out your world, do you ever like print those maps so you can put little, I don't know, Lego pier is the castle and this is the ruins and, or do you just keep it all in your head? I did not print it out. I actually, to start, I used incarnate. And um, after that, then I hired uh, like a map designer, map artist to make it a lot prettier because I felt like Incarnate just looked very much like Incarnate, you know, <laughs> it was very yeah. So I actually tend to because, I, you know, I said I, I did my training both is hands on. So in the history department, when we were studying things, especially when you're focusing on the military, the terrain matters so much to the tactics, to everything else. So we did a lot of sand tables as a, as an undergrad historian studying military history. And then the army uses that to print, to plan as well for the same reason. So I find I use that, like I'll make a, an overall map, but then when I'm planning actual action, I'll like make a, a three-dimensional sort of terrain feature. So I can see, well, if I'm here, yeah, that, X is over, you know, to the north, but he might not see that because the trees are in the way kind of thing. Um, so I can be more, you know, descriptive. Because um, I think description is where you you can sink or, or you know, make your ship sail, right? Like, you can you can ruin a story by, by getting stuff wrong uh, or, or you can get it right. There's a famous one, and I won't name names because we won't shame anyone. An author wrote a military sci-fi books in the space, space fleet genre, and one of his um, readers was a um, what do you call it? Arch naval architect. So he was curious, and he started mapping out the ship as he was describing it. And apparently, it never linked, and everything was open to space. And basically, they were all dead the minute they stepped on, because he didn't know where everything was. So he kept taking a lot of turns that ended up with a ship that was never like it was just a, a hodgepodge of 
like lines, like yeah. hallways that linked to nothing. Because the, which obviously is a bad thing, right? Like you, yeah. you want your, your stuff to be sound, right? Yeah, you can it, do that on land too. Like we talked about with rivers flowing upstream instead of down. And It's definitely preferable to have it all drawn out. And also, you know, I mean, obviously like <laughs> for the love of the gods, close the spaceship. But, right. um, <laughs> but um, for epic fantasy, at least like when you are on ground in ground, you don't really need to be describing how far the river goes every inch of the scene. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. If you have a map, that's great. Get your characters to the river and know where they're going from there. That's where they're headed. And every yeah. once in a while, you can add in that description, the sounds of the water flowing, the birds, you know, when you reach land, if you're on a ship in the ocean, things like that to really, like, paint the scene. But you want, you know, you, you want the, the readers to be immersed in what the characters are saying to each other and the character emotions or the fight scenes and things like that. Okay. Well, we're going to pause for a moment because we're at the halfway mark to air this commercial and we're going to shamelessly show for the man and then we'll come back and we'll let Malachi weigh in. But for now. Alien Days is a multi-author anthology with thrilling tales of aliens, invasions, artificial intelligence, friendship, deceit, and extinction. This combination of stories makes it a must-read for science fiction short story fans. This anthology features Nebula and Dragon Award nominees Amazon bestsellers and award winners alongside rising stars in the science fiction genre. Let the authors take you on adventures through dystopian worlds and far-flung planets that will stretch your imagination. Welcome to Alien Days. All right, thank you for sticking with us in that commercial interlude, dear listener. So, Malachi, we were talking about um, what makes it believable when it comes to, like, terrain, because that's where you know, cultures exist in the environment where they were spawned. And so that clearly affects the lay of the land. Um, how do you, like, you're a visually trained artist if you went to an art school. Do you tend to, when you're reading it, picture it as a painting in your head, as a movie? You, are you able to just hit the I believe button? Ooh, um, that's a great question. It's a combination of things. Um, you know, sometimes uh, when I'm reading, I'll see it as a movie. Often I'll be plotting out how to draw it as a comic. Um, okay. That's kind of how I got into all of this in the first place. I wanted to write and illustrate comics. Um, but yeah, um, I definitely tend to... Um, kind of, I've also got trained in film production, so I definitely okay. tend to, like, think of books as, like, kind of not thinking about it, I tend to think of books as, like, screenplay, like, <laughs> it happens all the time. I do it, too. Usually the rules with a screenplay is that it's, you know, a, a page per minute of film, and I'm always kind of, like, whenever I read, you know, a new book, I'm always kind of, like, I wonder how this could work visually, rather than as this, you know, intense extrasensory experience that could contain a lot of different, you know, yeah, senses in it. Okay. So when people add these fictional, like the histories to their world, do you think that that's something that they, they, would you prefer if they go heavy handed on it? Like that, you know, of the history of this war led to this war, or do you like it when they string you along just a little bit enough to make the world feel lived in? I like, I, I like when it's heavy handed. Cause yeah. <laughs> 
Me too, but apparently some people don't like the info dump. I definitely understand why someone wouldn't like it, but I, you know, I grew up reading like Lord of the Rings with the appendices. Um, <laughs> you too. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Dune and everything. And so I just like, I just want to know everything. Like, um, you know, like every other archaeologist, I would watch Indiana Jones movies as a kid, but I was just kind of like, okay, this guy likes to break stuff. I'm going to go read about, you know, the second king, the, sorry, um, I'm going to go read about one of the Egyptian dynasties instead and learn about what, you know, these cultures were actually like, because this is frankly a lot more interesting to me than the movie. Yeah. I was a really boring kid. I did research for fun. So that's just. Wait, that's not I normal. say that's the opposite of boring. Um, so I think <laughs> that. Oh, yay. I didn't it... know that was considered abnormal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that it really also depends on the genre. I feel like um, some okay. sci-fi or most sci-fi uh, readers, I think they like all that real sci-fi stuff. You know, they like all of the the details, those those mechanical details and stuff like that. And even epic fantasy, um, when you have like people who read like real epic fantasy, um, they want the world building, they want the con laying and they can really like get nerdy into it. Um, I think nowadays there are just so many subgenres and we might get caught up on like a few, you know, a few really popular ones where they've kind of like, let's say, you know, maybe Akatar and those, those kind of things where the world building is less and the focus is more uh, between characters and if you put too much world building, you'll get readers that are like, ah, oh, this is giving me a headache, yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, even though it's a whole different world and it is technically epic fantasy, um, just the subgenre kind of became a little bit more niche. So, obviously, like the history of some of a culture affects um, like how it interacts now. So, like for instance, the, the the famous one is the events of World War Two and or World War One, and what we did after led to World War Two, right? Like there's a uh, a knock-on effect that can cause further conflict or just further events. It doesn't always have to be war. So, but the other thing is, is not everything is known. So for instance, um, when the, uh, some of the prehistoric, the sea peoples came in and they destroyed cultures, like we don't know a lot about them, right? So there's room for mystery. Do you like when they leave things, some mystery to the history of these planets and these uh, fantasy you know cultures or do you like it when the author says nope this is absolutely what happened and we're going to talk about it is this for malachi or <laughs> either one of you well, I, I will say that i i think that once again i prefer like too much data over not enough i really like lots and lots of detail and stuff you can sink your teeth into at least as a reader Okay. Yeah. So for for those that don't know, in case because I you know I get a little nerdy sometimes and I forget not everyone reads the same thing as as when Egypt was on the decline uh, and the whole Eastern Med was sort of under attack during the late Bronze Age collapse. Don't ask me to give you years because when I went to school it was still BC and not BCE, so uh, <laughs> that just messes with my memory. Um, but so it's basically a, a people that just showed up and started ransacking and we really don't know where they were from and why they were doing it presumably like all wars it was resource oriented but we just don't know um and so that was what i was referring to and 
But I, I notice a lot with the world building and fantasy and sci-fi, everything is known. You can get away with that more, I think, in sci-fi because modern technology allows you to record things. But, you know, the human memory is fallible. And sometimes we don't know why a culture we're interacting with is doing what they're doing. We just see the end result. So from, from my perspective, I love it when there's a little bit of mystery because the world and the characters in it just don't know. Yeah. So I think that if that's done, if you are in a character's POV and they, they're, let's say they're under attack, right? And they maybe they weren't expecting it for whatever reason. They, you know, that those particular characters, maybe politically around them, they knew or they knew something was going to happen. But um, when you get the the point of view of someone being torn from their family or the pre the preparation of war and you see the you you automatically since you're reading that point of view see the other side as the enemy but we don't really know what's going on on the other side so that little bit of mystery i like that because you know, it, it kind of leads you to think like, all right, there's more here. There's more to this world. And I want to find out what's going on. I think David Gemmel did this really in a cool way with his uh, Nadir and Drenai um, Chronicles. Like they're like two different series, but they're all in the same world. And they're basically fighting the same war, but you get both sides in those two different series. Nice. That's a, that's a hard thing to pull off, though. Yeah, I mean... It's yeah, those are old books, <laughs> but it is very hard to pull off. No, I just mean the the yin and the yang. The, uh, there's a modern version that did it with a bookend style. Um, Richard Fox and Jonathan um, um, Brazi. Jonathan, I know so many Jonathans that are authors. I had to check which one. Jonathan <laughs> Brazi wrote one. It was a mill sci-fi, and it was told from officers leading the the, com the small scale conflict. So like majors. So they were leading smaller forces, but both of them at opposite ends of the same battlefield were fighting each other. And so it's from both of their perspectives. Right. But I, I've, I heard what research for them went into both ends of it and how much like coordination, because even sometimes a one liner can change everything. Right. Like yeah. unintentionally. So. And so, yeah, that's, that's a very hard thing to pull off. It's a lot to keep track of. And you're really you're you're writing it in like. These are two different cultures. So we also need to see how they view each other and yes. their reasons for hating each other, like their history and the different perspectives, because clearly they're both going to have different perspectives over the same thing that happened so long ago that they're now still fighting about, you know. So I grew up in Virginia, and so the the Hatfields and McCoys of West Virginia aren't that far of a trip for me enough that we that came up in our, our history classes. So that's one of the things I, I that caught my attention with that incident in history, and that's sort of what you're describing is some somehow along the way a fight started, whether one side was the bad guy or not. Both sides are going to claim it was the other guy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes two opposing forces just stumble into each other, and misunderstandings happen, and people die, and then you know, chaos ensues, but it gets to be a certain point in time. Nobody really knows the lore is just what it is. And both sides fight because inertia, like, because that's just what they've always done. We're at a war with the bad guys. And so we must fight them. Yeah. A lot of times it stems from just survival. Yeah. And survival of the fittest. If you have two opposing forces that need a territory or they, for whatever reason, whether it's resources or a place to live, you know, um, 
that's like that's that's going to be the fight and instead of negotiating or they try to negotiate maybe one has an ulterior motive and then that kind of like just causes yeah. <laughs> causes conflict so you guys are both archaeologically trained and i was just a generic historian so i'll ask you this there are sometimes in fantasy specifically where they will like, discover ruins it happens in in sci-fi, but not as much, but you know, they'll discover ruins and they decide to investigate. You saw even in Tolkien, they found some, some dwarven ruins that That's they right. went through and encountered the baddies in. Do you like seeing that? And if you do, does it like make you cringe at all? Cause like, Ooh, you're, you're destroying the history. Like what are your thoughts on when, when you see archeology span portrayed in fiction? I get excited. I think it's yeah. fun. But I still keep in mind that good archaeology would make an incredibly boring movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I realize that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, in mine, you know, because I had I had an ancient Greek invasion into this whole dimension that they were not expecting there to be a whole different like magical race and their magic being like the huge opposition to this new Greek magic coming in. Um well, maybe I wanted to read your book. I'm sorry. <laughs> Spoilers. This is the backstory, guys. <laughs> it doesn't really spoil much. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> but um, so in The Fool's Journey, which is really technically book zero of the Chronicles of Terrorland, um, the main character, Harold, is a bit of a nerd. He's not an archaeologist. He's interested in it. He, he's very nerdy compared to the actual main character of the rest of the series. So when he first lands in, in this new world, which is what we call uh, Tarot Land, but the natives call it Ipa, um, there are ancient Greek ruins. And he went through a portal to go to Jodenheim which is a whole different Norse world. So when he ends up in this snow-covered wasteland and finds an ancient Greek column, <laughs> he, he realizes that he made a big mistake. He made the wrong turn <laughs> in his portal crossing dilemma. But I, the archaeologist in me really wanted him to be like, that is an ionic column. <laughs> But I deleted it because it's like, you're going to overwhelm the readers. Like, especially this is already epic fantasy. There's already a whole like different magic system and con lang and all this other stuff. Let me, let me leave out some of that technical, you know, jargon. So, you know, Malachi, as, as sci-fi nerds, we have failed our readers or our audience so far because we did not mention Stargate. The, the, the most iconic uh, sci-fi property that involves archaeology. Uh, it just occurred to me when we've got like 15 minutes left of the show, and you know they're going to take our nerd card, so we've got to recover strong. So that's an actual <laughs> example of involving um, those such ancient a huge appointment. But I have. I know we 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 will do better, people. We will do better. We'll we'll like whip ourselves with hair shirts or whatever the ancient monks used to do. Uh, I didn't study that period of history, people. We're just going to hit. I believe and move on. Archaeology right now, and I yeah. Will never happen again. I will not let y'all down like this again. <laughs> but that's one example where you can incorporate um, ancient cultures in a way that's believable. Now, for Stargate, for those of you who don't know, what are you doing with your life? But the idea was these alien, the the ancient gods actually were aliens, and so they sort of abducted humans and took them to other places, and you know you could live out those periods. But it doesn't have to be actual 
like earth-based societies where you can involve it, the plot of showing up on an abandoned world and finding things or remnants of culture could apply, you know, with alien worlds, with, you know, insert whatever. And that actually, you know, can give you room to play with, you know, anything you get wrong because, you know, there's, there's cultural drift or it's alien. So you get a pass. Like that gives you a way for you who are amateur historians, but want to write about it or read about it to do so, I think, and still make it believable because you only have to get good enough. I mean, if Indiana Jones could do it and that was questionable on some of the historiography, <laughs> like you can do it. <laughs> um, oh, I have to bring up though, um, if you're interested in more, you know, sci-fi involving, you know, ruins and archaeology, Prometheus is actually like one of the more accurate depictions of, you know, professional archaeology or cultural resource management archaeology. Which um, just from like a, just from like an economic and like business perspective, obviously the field work is very different. We don't tend to use Geiger counters or get attacked by, uh, those types <laughs> of things. but, um, you know, it's not the best movie ever made, but it is a movie involving archeology span that, um, I think is really worth checking out if you're into that field at all. Uh, it's a good one. I've, I've seen it. But I do think there's there's ways to make it believable. And if if you're going to go absurd, like, you know, and you, you can't get it right, then just make it fun. Because the rule of cool will get you through a lot of obstacles of, of reality and realism if it's cool. Right. If it's stylish. And whatever, right. And whatever you do for the love of God, midichlorians were a heresy and don't go something that dumb. Oh. Like, just leave the magic. Like, let the force be the force. I'm not over that, Killian. I'm, I'm still bitter. Me too. <laughs> Okay. You, so the no. middle, sorry, yeah. you go, you go. So, so, so Star Wars, um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a hybrid, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's part fantasy, part sci-fi. But you know, um, what I think I think is why I love Star Wars because I, yeah. I I lean more into the fantasy, and um, that that is just it. I yeah, I, I I understand the Force. I can understand it, you know. But so. I feel like as long as they can explain it, which they do, it's okay. Okay. All right. You were going to say Malachi. I'm, I'm curious. I'm all ears. Oh, I just. Train left. Chlorians were a travesty. <laughs> yes. So here's, here's something that came up. We did a fireside chat recently about realistic combat and fantasy and then realistic combat in sci-fi. Mm. And one of the overlying um themes in both was that everything was too clean anyone that's ever been camping anyone that's like you're an archaeologist you've lived in the field you know nothing ever stays clean like so when you see these worlds where everyone is so clean and they're showered and their hair is perfectly groomed oh, and their teeth yeah. are just perfect i'm like i'm not saying everyone's <laughs> teeth was rotting out of their mouth like some bad monty python skit but i mean you know they didn't have braces either Right. Right. Like, and so there's definitely a room for making things gritty and dirty and feel lived in. Yeah. Dirty space. Dirty space was a very good uh, development within sci-fi. I think I'm very much in favor of dirty space. Yeah. I don't know if it's the official aesthetic name or just what I call it, or if I heard it somewhere. But. I, I've I've heard that before too. The kind of that grim, dark realism. Yeah. Um, that's what they dinged the Stargate Universe franchise or sub franchise for, which I actually liked. Um, it wasn't the same audience, so I get why. Well, then it went to Fox, where uh, Fox Entertainment, where all good shows go to die. Um, 
but there there's definitely room for for that kind of gritty realism for me like <laughs> like one of the the lived in features with you're talking about cultures military people have to account for everything. I don't care if it's fantasy, sci-fi, or modern day times. There's some supply sergeant somewhere who's going to make you sign for that in triplicate, uh, maybe even in your own blood if it's fantasy. And so the idea that, you know, Bob died and I'm just leaving his crap there for the bad. No, no, you're grabbing it and taking it with you. And so that's one of the things the Stargate Universe French or, you know, series got right is, you know, when Bob died, they took his rifle and anything they could scrounge because resupply wasn't exactly coming tomorrow. That is something that um, I keep an eye for. Yeah. So the logistics, I guess, is what, what we're hinting at is, you know, considering the logistics, I think it was Napoleon that said famously, a, a army moves on its belly. And I'm sure he was paraphrasing someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing that a lot of, you see it more in fantasy than anything. Cause you can get like sci-fi gets the modern tech and the, the replicator type stuff as a way to get around logistical issues, um, 3d printing and whatnot. You could, use magic but most authors tend to make their magic more rare i think less ubiquitous so in fantasy like when the logistics are wrong like if i'm sorry if you're in the middle of a desert how did you get your water i mean you can in small there's a reason desert peoples were smaller and nomadic right (laughs) or they were centered around a river but you know you're not just going to cross the desert with nothing either so yeah were there were there anything logistically that sticks out to you guys, given that you trained to do that in the field yourselves? In both reading or on screen? Um, either one. Either one. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a little bit more forgiving just because now I'm paying attention to what the story needs a lot. Right. Um, I know that in dystopian um I, I do re- I do watch a lot of dystopian stuff. I, I guess that's maybe my preferred uh, form of sci-fi. And a lot of times, it's like, yeah, it's like you you know you you need to now grab their resources, their knives, their guns, or whatever. A lot of times, they're kind of just running from whatever, whether it's a zombie or some sort of uh, mushroom fungus thing. Something <laughs> I, I watched recently. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> I liked it. So what gets me about that when you talk about the resources is, you know, gas isn't infinitely stable. It will break down over time. So if you're X number of years past that the event, else. Yes, yes. The, 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 the gas is done. Right. The cars still run. Where's the gas coming from? Who's right. still refining it? Uh, canned goods. Eventually they will expire. Most average um, canned goods. Now there's prepper quality food. There's just not a lot of it. You'd have gone they through it eventually. And you right. But yeah the canned goods generally are two to five years depending on the cans of course you can stretch that out if you're brave and you know what to watch for 15 years all of that's gone yeah yeah if you open one of those packages what you're gonna get is like gas yeah you know if it's meat oh there is a channel where there's a guy that goes around and he gets um, old uh, MRE type meal field rations basically, and he will yeah. eat them. And he has eaten one from the 1890s. I, I don't know how he's not dead. Um, you know, hashtag modern American medicine for the win, I guess. But like, you have to be so specialized to know what you're looking for to make that work. The well, average person is not, and then they haven't rationed their food. So like I said, MRE. two to five years, it's all gone. MREs are infamous to constipate you too. So, like, if you yeah. eat them that old, it's like, do you want diverticulitis? Because that's <laughs> diverticulitis, you know. <laughs> so, 
Military MREs are five-year shelf life. Um, there are some civilian versions that will last longer. Um, other, and I'm speaking of the American version because I, I haven't researched into what other countries are doing. But um, even with that shelf life, you could probably get a little bit past that if it's stored properly. Right. But most of the post-apoc, I've noticed it's about 20 years later, right? Because you don't have to show the actual cataclysm and make it believable. You can just sort of pick up in the ruins, which I get from a storytelling perspective. But that means you have to explain where all that food is coming from. And, and you know, you could just not address it, and that's fine, too. But if you have them doing a raid on an old building because, oh, it's an abandoned um, grocery store. I'm looking at you, Fallout Universe. Like, that food's all gone. Oh, like, you know... One show, I so something that really stuck out to me recently was I was watching Sweet Tooth, and oh, I've family, seen that. Yeah, so it's I a good so, show. It's cute. It's great. Do you remember when that when that family up in that um I guess it's like the mountain it retreat, a, the ski yeah, lodge. Yeah, yeah. That's, okay. So the gondolas that were working are they electrically powered, or would they be powered by a fuel generator? I honestly don't know. I have no idea. They didn't show it, but like, who's who's working on that maintenance? Not not the family. They 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 just found that place. Yeah. You so know. if it's solar powered, the solar powers might last. Uh, if they're close enough to a nuclear power plant and it didn't go critical, that'll get you some years. But I mean, you have to know specifics of logistics. There's an interesting series that I think TLC did, but I could be wrong. It was called Life After People, and like the premises is just you know. The rapture comes tomorrow and all people just disappeared all on the same day. Like what, what happens to the earth? And it's right. definitely like, I've heard critiques of some of the, the science behind it, but as a general rule for the layman, I thought it's perfectly acceptable. It's worth watching. Um, it, they okay. covered a lot of that, like the, the power and what would fail and rubber gaskets are going to dry out. And yeah, that's right. I talk about Manhunt too much, but Manhunt does a really good job looking at the logistics of the apocalypse. Like, such a good job, so much detail. Like, thinking about like how to find gasoline, what people are eating, the like city states that have sprung up in the ruins yeah. of America, trade routes. Uh, oh, it's magnificent. And how many people you... kill themselves for gas when the apocalypse is just coming out <laughs> yeah the uh that's an interesting one too they the, one of the things that, that people also forget because we've modern conveniences have allowed us to build wherever like let's just face it las vegas arizona those probably wouldn't look like they did today if we didn't have yeah. modern infrastructure um we were building on rivers for a reason we were building near bodies of water yeah, exactly. uh, and i think we would go back to some of that um, if you like documentaries about this kind of stuff, uh, they are not a sponsor, but Curiosity Stream, it's like Netflix for nerds. It's all documentaries. I love it. There's a few competitors for them that have popped up. I can't remember the name of it. Um, a lot of the people that were doing documentary type shows in that genre um, on YouTube went there because they could get paid because um, just the way the ads worked. And so there's a few options. But yeah, there's a lot of good documentaries out there on this that looks into this stuff with some really smart people that you wouldn't have otherwise heard of. Excellent. Cool. So excellent. Yeah. In archeology, span usually when we, you know, if we do a survey of an area and there's a waterway, that's a high probability area, you know, yeah. there it's a source of food, but it's also a source of getting to trade routes. Yep. Yeah. And some so fresh water, um, fresh water, fresh water springs. 
before they dredged the river in downtown Miami, there was, well, there were river rapids and there were also freshwater springs that would come up, you know. Yeah, we have those all around Miami. Yep. Not, not anymore. You wouldn't know looking at the modern landscape, but that was the case. Yeah. That's actually, so I'm working on a series with James Ward. It's um, a modern striker brigade gets sucked into fantasy Egypt. And that's one of the things that I'm surprised that you don't think about when it comes to geography is rivers actually move too. Like you're talking about what humans did when we essentially, I don't want to say terraforming, but like when we cultivated land to make it more what we wanted it to be. So, you know, you intentionally move rivers or, you know, you, you solidify bogs so you can use it. Like there's a lot of things we can do to change terrain. Um, that you know you don't realize that even without that rivers just shift generally speaking sometimes because yeah. the yeah. nile isn't where it is today or it wasn't back then you know in nefertiti's time for instance like it's it's moved yeah. by how much you know that that's going to depend on where you're at but that's an interesting thing to factor in i will say we talked about food running out there are places and situations where it could last indefinitely i'm thinking they've discovered some of the ships that sank in the black sea and they've gotten deep enough that they're below the salination level. And they're actually pulling those amphoras. Is that, I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Amphora, the tear, yeah. yeah, the teardrop-shaped clay pots. And they're mm -hmm. pulling those out intact. And they're opening them. And they're finding that the food that's in it is still consumable. If you're brave enough and you don't want to, like, bring a modern plague. Because we don't know, like, that our stomachs could handle some of the, the germs and stuff. Uh, and if you want to see what that could look like as a worst-case scenario, House did an episode, the, the doctor show where a diver found one of those and he ended up getting like, um, I want to say like smallpox or something like that from a, yeah. from a wreck, from yeah. a naval ship. That'll happen. Well, and I, I have destroyed my, my digestive tract far enough on our archaeological sites to ever do anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, there, there's know. unfortunately um, a convention in archaeology and geology where sometimes yeah. you lick a rock yes, or a yes, to yes. identify what it is. <laughs> We're really yes, trying yes. to get folks to yeah. stop putting things they found Seriously, in the ground. Seriously, guys. Their mouth. Just stop <laughs> it. So if it sticks to your tongue, it. it's a bone. If it doesn't, it's pottery. And I'm like, it has a porous <laughs> membrane. Don't ask me how I know that. It has a porous membrane. The other don't stuff do doesn't. Don't do it. Figure yeah. out another way. Wasn't it, wasn't it Meryl, uh, Mal, that gave us a story? And Meryl was going to be here, but unfortunately she couldn't make it. Because um, her father's a paleontologist. Okay. So she told us um, that they found a woolly mammoth um, in ice. In Siberia, and, yes. And I'm not sure where it was exactly. And I wish she was here to tell us the story, but Ma Malachi already knows what I'm about to say. Yeah. They defrosted it and they cooked it. <laughs> that they did. That and they did. And I they, really wish I was here. To what tell it tastes like. What did it taste like? <laughs> I'd imagine huh? steak, but I don't know. <laughs> so there has been an instance where with, with the changing um temperatures and we don't need to get in the climate debate because you know yeah. there's lots of valid arguments on all sides that i think are worth considering but not today uh but one of the things that has happened is the permafrost shifts you know because it's it's in places it wasn't before and not in other places and we've mm -hmm. discovered things like uh it, you know the the bog man has come up we've got the the famous guy that was um they found him he's the murder the oldest murder victim we found um i'm drawing a blank on his name but curiosity stream had a documentary on him um but they, and they're not a sponsor. I, I should reach out. But uh, one of the things that you find is that some of the stuff like the, the viruses and amoebas and whatnot yeah. that have been frozen for all these, they come Are back to life. And 
<laughs> yeah. And I'm like, do you want zombies? Because that's how you yeah. get zombies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no. And, and they, they basically, they have a hibernation period of almost eternity. <laughs> Which, I mean, I remember reading about that because it came out right as For COVID was hitting. Yeah. yeah, it came out right as the discovery of this came out right as COVID was hitting. So we were all a lot more sensitive to it. And I just remember all the memes like, do you want the zombies? Because this is how you get the zombies. <laughs> so we are at the hour mark and, I, and we record at nine, which means it's now 10 o'clock for these people and they have day jobs they have to get up for. So I, I don't want to go forever. Um, if you have topics uh, in the field of making histories in, in fictional worlds believable that you want us to uh, address, we could certainly have them back for another episode. So be sure to comment in the, um, in the, um, on the Facebook where you find it or anywhere else you find it, reach out to us directly. And we'd certainly like to expand on the topic if, you, if you're interested. But with that said, as we wrap these fireside chats up, we like to say, so what is everyone reading? So what are you guys reading right now? I am reading The Iron King by Julia Kagawa. Okay. Do you like it? It's so I usually go for upper YA or new adult, as is my writing. So this is definitely more on the younger YA. I'm still enjoying it uh, for sure. But yeah, it, it's definitely sweet. It's a lot sweeter than I'm accustomed to. <laughs> they have counseling for that. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. So. So what about you, Malachi? What are you reading? I am reading Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg because I am, in fact, a walking stereotype. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. So <laughs> I I need to um, – I just finished A Spring for Spears by um, Katie Cross and um, Derek Sidaway. Uh, and I just wrote the review for that because I write reviews for Upstream Reviews. And so I needed a palate cleanser before I dive into another book. So I'm actually reading uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations again. I read that every so often. Um, I, I like his his stoicism um, sort of takes on things. Uh, it seems to be ageless, which surprises me because I, while I think humans are still humans because you know a lot of our emotions are chemically based and that hasn't changed that we know of. Um, I do think the cultures we exist in affects us too. That old nature versus nurture. Yeah. So it surprises me every time you see things that are you know he wouldn't be that out of place for the modern infantry today and he wrote from the roman perspective 2000 years ago or more i, I don't have a calculator handy people don't ask me to do math <laughs> that's um good. so that's yeah, that's what i'm nice. reading none of us can um, do math here yeah i studied <laughs> history because i didn't have to do the math um so you know, it's just one of those things. I, I do find it fascinating that did you guys as archaeologists have to take the histiography class, the history of history? Uh, I took the science version of that. Um, okay. But not yeah. the, yeah. Um, yeah. We, I learned a lot about the the history of science and the history of anthropology and That's right. yeah. you know, all kinds of different ontologies. Um, but never the, just because I wasn't a history major. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons that reminded me is because we didn't talk about this, but the other thing is when, when you talk about archaeology is the rule for the, the room for past mistakes to compound the, the knowledge of the peoples. So like some of the dinosaurs that we think were dinosaurs were actually composites. Uh, and I imagine because creatures that are living are fallible, unless they're gods, that's going to happen on your alien worlds too. So just food for thought as we wrap this up. Um, Killian, what are you writing right now? Because you are a resident author. 
I just finished editing um, or getting my edits finalized to give to my copy editor of book two of Chronicles and Tarot Land. So that is finally done. And nice, nice. Yeah, I'm going to give myself a week and then outline book three and start on that. Nice. So Malachi, I understand you have certain art credentials and you like to do that as a hobby. So what are you working on? Do you have any projects you can talk about? Well, currently for my um, full-time job with Florida Public Archaeology Network, I'm working on the illustrations for an AR app that we are building with the Jupiter Lighthouse Outstanding Natural Area. Um, the lighting. Yeah, let me give you full screen real quick. So. Um, but just like some historical reconstruction of, you know, canoe building, tool making, cooking stuff, um, the types of things that people that... Um, Hey, good people living in the town of Hobey might have been getting up to, uh, um, you know, around 3,000 years ago, I think was our cutoff point for what we were going to talk about in the app. Um, cool. As well as a painting, of, a personal product of mine, uh, a painting of what I describe as the toilet garden in uh, one of the houses, one of the, one of the many houses I've been kicked out of. <laughs> living in Miami under a housing crisis. So, oh, look at that. Oh, it's a toilet. How pending way of you. <laughs> I had a very... My, previ my previous landlords have been very strange people, and one of them ran a permaculture farm that had... He was a general contractor, so he just had a bunch of random like construction stuff lying around, including right. like, a garden of toilets out in the forest, and I just thought it was... Yeah. So becoming. So I took a bunch hey, of pictures hey, of it man. and now I'm painting it. I, I like yeah. it. <laughs> Weird people are urinal. my people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hemingway had a urinal in his backyard, in his garden. It was it's a it's a cat well, she, content, so you know. She's entirely too sober to be too Hemingway. So so that's that's progress. <laughs> um so I'm still working on um, the second book of the Curse Brigade series, which is that you know, the modern striker brigade going into fantasy Egypt. Uh, life has been weird, so I've been writing slower than normal, but I'm picking up speed again. And uh, we lost a little bit, of, a little bit of momentum because the publisher brought on more editors. So they said, instead of sending it to us when you're done with book three, send us book one now, and we'll get it done. Which meant we had to stop. And I don't know if you, if anybody who isn't a writer, like your editing brain is different than your writing brain. Yeah. So it's like you got to halt the train. And it takes a little bit of time to slow it down, and then you got to go the other direction to do the editing. And we just finish the first draft of, of that full edit and I'll be getting it ready hopefully within the next week or two to send to the publisher. And in the meantime, I'll be writing like split shift, essentially half day editing, half day writing, trying to push the story forward. And book two is at like 40,000 words right now with a goal of 120. So I guess we're about a third of the way there as we record this in um, the end of May. Excellent. So. That's great. And editing and writing at the same time is oh, not easy. Goodness. I don't recommend it. I get the benefit yeah. of, you know, I work with family that, that help with the editing. So like they're sort of directing the project and just pointing me in the right direction. Like, okay, we need to look at this one section. Don't read anything else. This one section. And so it keeps me sort of focused um, like um, in, in the small details, uh, but I'm not just editing a novel. I've got uh, a novella and a short story that I'm also <laughs> editing at the same time uh, that all got their notes back from, from the pub, uh, from the editor at the same time. So I think uh, in the future, one at a time projects probably is going to be best for my sanity and what little hair I have left. Um, so, all right, as we wrap this puppy up, one, Malachi, thank you for coming. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so uh, much for having me. This was great. 
and you too, Killian. So uh, Malachi, if they wanted to reach out to you about the art that you do, where could they find you? And we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, so um, if you want to talk about scientific illustration, um, you can find me at JPEG Artifact on Instagram, which is jpeg.artifact. Um, and if you want to talk about archaeology, um, the Florida Public Archaeology Network, um, I'm in the southeast region. Our website is fpan.us. Um, you can navigate to uh, our contact information in the southeast region page, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as fpan southeast. And we do free talks for schools and museums and historical societies and anyone who will let us flap our gums about archaeology. Okay, that is that is interesting. And so if you have a if you run a con in Florida and you want them to come talk about history, because that could be per pertinent for certain fantasy worlds, they would love to get nerdy with you. So reach out. Yes, we would. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so how can they reach you, Killian? And I'll link all of this as usual in the show notes. Sure. So for me, it's pretty easy. You can go to uh, if you're using Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatnot. It's always at Killian underscore Wolf underscore author. And you can find me there. You, my website is also uh, KillianWolf.com. And my email is Killian at KillianWolf.com. All right. Well, thank you for, for that. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Um, we do answer those. I promise you. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen and you can comment about our very app various episodes when we post them at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast you can follow us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades again anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on and it is greatly appreciated these podcasts aren't free to produce they are there is some overhead and we appreciate every bit you guys do to defray that cost uh, and if you don't have the money to do that share it with a friend get the word out that helps too um, or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley again buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley uh, and i promise i will keep my co-hosts doc saska and nick garber duly caffeinated they will drink until their liver explodes people because coffee is important we really should get a coffee sponsor too Maybe then it gets me free coffee. That's the real reason I want that. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, and if you like the YouTubes, if that's your preferred consumption method for content, I will say I have enjoyed some of Killian's content. I link her YouTube channel. It is worth watching. She is very animated. And I don't know why she's not narrating her own dang books because she's got talent. Um, <laughs> that's an idea. And, and enthusiasm. So that, that counts a lot. But uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.